Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their amazing stories of experience, strength, and hope. Today's interview is with Christina C., a woman whose struggles with addiction, alcoholism, and mental illness began with a difficult childhood. Though raised in affluence, her childhood was marred by a myriad of family chaos and conflict. By age five, Christina was already engaging in self-harm and other behaviors to cope. By her adolescence, she had added alcohol and drugs to her escalating means of escape and even attempted suicide. By 15, her parents had run out of conventional treatment approaches and put Christina into a three-year program with other troubled youths. During that time, she first experienced AA meetings, albeit as an unwilling and reluctant attendee. Amazingly, she stayed clean and sober for three years, though her ultimate plan to return to drugs and alcohol was fulfilled shortly thereafter. More failed attempts to help Christina culminated in a devastating crisis at age 22, when her boyfriend of two years suffered a fatal drug overdose. Crushed by the loss, she abruptly stopped using drugs. Instead, she turned solely to alcohol and cutting to deal with her grief and anxiety. Christina's odyssey over the next seven years was fraught with additional attempts at treatment and even some progress amidst her functional alcoholism. But it was the disease-driven low times of depression and hopelessness that paved the way to her bottom. At 29, with seemingly no other alternative than suicide, Christina was finally ready to accept help. That meant inpatient medical help for her mental health issues, intensive outpatient treatment, and a new willingness to work a God-centered AA program. At nearly four years sober, Christina's journey from the abyss to the center of AA is nothing short of a miracle. In addition to her arduous work in the program to assure her own sobriety, her service work extends beyond AA into her professional life as a mental health therapist. It's been amazing to watch Christina's rise from the depths of despair to the heights of true God consciousness and reliance. Her story is an inspiration, especially to women of her generation who've struggled with alcoholism, substance abuse, and mental illness. In full disclosure, I've known of Christina's struggles and successes largely through a close friendship I've had with her father for many years. I'm grateful he never stopped believing in her, but it also took his very well-worked Al-Anon program to help him support her in many ways that benefited and blessed them both. His is a remarkable Al-Anon story I hope to share with you in a future show. But for now, please enjoy this episode of AA Recovery Interviews as we focus the next 65 minutes on an extraordinary woman who I am honored to call my friend and AA sister, Christina C. Hi, my name's Christina. I'm an alcoholic or addict. Hi, Christina. Hi. I'm so glad that you're able to join me today on AA Recovery Interviews podcast series. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, thank you. I'm so glad you're here. As a matter of fact, I knew you or I knew about you a number of years before you actually came into the program via your father. And he and I go back a long ways and we're very good friends. And I know that he, while you were in the process of your journey, he was on kind of a parallel journey himself. And uh, these days and since then, I know he's been very much involved in uh, an Al-Anon program. One of the reasons I wanted to talk with you today, because I did an interview with him about four years ago on a different podcast. And of course, I got his perspective, what he saw from his end. But I was so interested in having you on the show today because I know that you've got a pretty fascinating story from what I've been able to piece together from what he told me. And the fact that you're sober today is an absolute miracle. So I agree. How long have you been sober now? It's been three years. It's going to be almost four years in August. Wow. Congratulations on that. Thank you so much. And did you ever think that you would end up in AA? <laughs> um, well, I had a, a rough start. And so my parents actually put me in uh, treatment in an APG, an alternative peer group when I was 15. So I kind of saw it all coming. <laughs> 
it's interesting. I've interviewed some guests who are quite a bit older than you are who started out that way as well, and now they got 30, sometimes 40 years of sobriety. There's a lot to be said for good starts. I guess your APG was just that. Definitely. I didn't see it that way at the time, but... <laughs> you didn't, huh? No. <laughs> well, I'm sure it must have been uh, difficult. Can you tell me what APG is for the folks listening? Yeah, it's an alternative peer group where it's kind of a group of sober, clean individuals that are young, usually. And mm-hmm. um, I think ours was like 15 or 13, 12 to 24 and so they get together, usually um, with parents' involvement and are together and kind of doing cleaner, um, sober things and are kind of living a recovery-oriented lifestyle and doing therapy and, and that kind of thing. Wow, that is so cool. So what was it like growing up with regard to your eventually needing to go to an APG at 15? I feel grateful to have had a family that was um, well-to-do, like we had enough Mm -hmm. to eat and everything was taken care of in that way. But Mm -hmm. I would say it wasn't very well-connected as a house. We kind of were all doing really our own things and just kind of living under the same roof. So I didn't really feel like I was part of a family growing up. And my brother had a lot of mental health issues and that Mm -hmm. started pretty early on when I was five or so. And so he was always getting kicked out of school or the police were coming and things like that. So the focus and attention was kind of on him. So I was kind of doing my own thing, just kind Mm -hmm. of trying to get good grades and reading books and kind of living in my own world. Yeah, I get that. I just want you to know that your dad and I had been friends when you were struggling, when your brother especially was having some of those issues. He, yeah, I know your family struggled with that. What happens oftentimes is that people are ignored, or if they're not, not ignored, they're certainly not paid the most attention to when there's somebody like that in the family. Was that kind of the way it was in your family? Yeah, I would say that's at least my perspective on it. Um, Mm -hmm. So I kind of felt like I was kind of on my own in the family, Uh really just, um, I mean, I still was like paid attention to, but I kind Mm -hmm. of felt like I was on my own in terms of just kind of doing my own thing because there was just so much going on with him. It's hard to kind of have enough energy for both children, I guess. Yeah, I can imagine that must have been really difficult. Yeah. How young were you when you first noticed that or first had some kind of self-awareness of your situation and your place in the family? I would say around like five years old. I remember like um, a lot of times there would be like yelling or screaming, especially my brother. And Mm. one time, because we had rooms that were kind of near each other, he was like locked in his room and he was just like banging on the door and and screaming for me to let him out. And I just felt so powerless as a kid that I couldn't do anything. And I knew like for some reason he was in there and I didn't know what to do. That must have been pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of feedback did you get from your parents about his situation that might have helped you either understand or deal with it as a five-year-old? Um, just that he was had problems and was difficult to deal with. And I would see that, too, that he would talk back and he was always uh, like making trouble and stuff. So I could kind of conceptualize that he was being punished and that there was problems. But I just was very like compassionate as a as a kid and I just didn't know how to um, compartmentalize the fact that he was in pain but everybody else in the house was in pain too. And often children and the siblings of those who are in trouble try and find an escape for that even as a real young kid whether it's in schoolwork or play or fantasy or whatever else. What kind of escapes did you have as a little kid to kind of reestablish some normalcy in your life? Yeah, I definitely read a lot. I was like on the list of like accelerated readers and everything Uh for my grade. But I think I would say mental health is a big part of my story, too. So I remember um, doing self-harm when I was as young as five years old, too. So that was kind of just my part of like trying to externalize the pain that I was going through internally, I think. Wow. So here's your brother acting the way he was acting and you were cutting, you said at that time? Yeah. What was the outcome of that? It kind of didn't come to a head until I was a lot older. That self-harm is a real a real problem. It's one of the ways that mental health disease expresses itself and shows up. To what degree do you think that that behavior at five triggered or accelerated other behaviors? 
I think that I found escapes and I really liked that and it helped. And so as soon as any substances were offered, I was like, okay, another escape. So I was just ready to find anything that would work to get me out of, because I never felt okay. Even Mm -hmm. as young as at that age, I was never feeling like I was happy or okay. I don't remember ever being like a happy kid. I'm sorry to hear that. (laughs) I came from that kind of family too. And it's, you know, looking back, you can see with a better vision, the diseases at work, the mental health issues, like clinical depression in my family, how those things contribute to your own personality. So when did you first start engaging with uh, substances? How old were you when that happened? Um, I think 14. Mm -hmm. I think I tried maybe alcohol when I was like 12. Mm -hmm. Um, Didn't really love the taste of straight hard liquor. So nothing really came of that. But then um, started experimenting with harder drugs around 14. Hmm. Between five and 14, okay, we're talking about eight or nine years there. What kind of things were your folks doing to get help? And what did that help consist of? And how effective was it? Yeah, I definitely went to therapy. We did family therapy, I think, um, at one point, Mm -hmm. but it never really came to anything. We didn't, like, it wasn't ongoing or anything. The help didn't really come until, um, I think, at 14 or 15, I had the suicide attempt, and then it was kind of shocking to my parents. And then that's when um, everything kind of came into play. They saw that I was cutting and everything happened and they kind of got me a lot of help at that time. Were you not being seen in that kind of behavior previous to when you were 14 or was it just kind of episodic? What was the nature of that? I just kept it to myself and nobody really noticed. Huh. Yeah. Well, it's hard to believe that people wouldn't notice when somebody is bleeding, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they had a lot going on and, and I tried to really keep my pain to myself. Yeah, that must have been tough. A lot of times people find that when their folks aren't around, things get even worse than if they're around and things are tough in the house. What was it like for you between, let's say, 5 and 14 uh, with respect to your parents' availability to you? I would say they were available physically. My dad worked a lot, but he would be available as much as he could. Um, And my mom was there They definitely were around, um, but never felt emotionally available, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get that. We never really talked about our feelings or like problems that were going on. It Mm. was really mostly like, are things okay in school? And I tried to make really good grades. And so as long as that was okay, like I was okay to them. Hmm. Must have been a lot of family secrets to the outside world. Yeah. When you look at issues of substance abuse, alcoholism, mental illness in your family, what do you know about parents or your grandparents or the family tendencies towards addiction? So my mom is adopted. So we don't, you kind of met her ex, like extended family um, eventually. And I think they've got some substance use stuff going on, but I don't know kind of the extent of it. But as far as my um, immediate like grandparents, I know on my dad's side, my grandma went to OA and she did that for a while. Huh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Everybody lived in Boston. So we would go back there summers and winters. So I had some, um, a lot of contact with them. So being part of a 12-step program, sometimes we'll reach out, an OA will reach out to someone who's having substance abuse or alcohol issues. To what extent was that offered to you by your grandmother? Did she notice anything or say anything to you? Um, I don't think that she felt like that was really her place necessarily or Mm -hmm. noticed really. I think maybe also because of the distance since she was up north and we were down here in Texas, Mm -hmm. it was kind kind of a far gap to bridge. Yeah, I get that. Then if we kind of fast forward through the nine years there, it sounds like maybe those nine years were kind of a blur. Yeah, it was just a lot of uh, the same, just kind of a really intense, chaotic household with my brother and me just trying to live my own kind of life and, and not really make a lot of noise or draw a lot of attention and about just doing really well in school and I didn't start rebelling until like 13, 14, 15. And that's when all the kind of everything came loose, I guess. Yeah. And I want to, and I do want to talk about that. You're in the mental health field yourself, are you not? Yes. I'm a therapist. 
Do you deal with a lot of addictions? I deal with some addictions, more just general mental health, mm-hmm. a lot of adolescence. <laughs> yeah, I get that. So as someone who knows a great deal about that now, because it's your livelihood and perhaps it's your passion too. Definitely. Um, looking back at the Christina back between ages five and 14, through the lens of somebody who knows about and has counseled lots and lots of people, what do you think you could have been told or what could have been offered to you that might have made a difference back then? What was huge for me learning later on in life when I started to really get the help I needed was emotion regulation. I don't Mm. think kids are really taught how to regulate or deal with their emotions. And so I would have these really strong feelings and I just had no idea how to deal with them except to either bottle them up or try to escape from them or Mm -hmm. externalize the pain or um, just really negative coping skills. I didn't really... um, figure out a lot of positive coping skills on my own. So really learning those later on was extremely helpful. And I think maybe had um, I've been in some kind of therapy, I learned a lot through DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy about Mm -hmm. emotion regulation um, and frustration tolerance about that kind of thing. So I think maybe if that had come into play earlier in the picture, I think that would have been really helpful. Yeah, I'm sure it probably would have been. And, you know, as as an adult, about the time I had to deal with my own addictions, I was already in my very early 30s. But even the healing that comes that long after the harm is still valuable and still therapeutic to to a greater extent. Oh, definitely. So you drank a little bit at 12, Mm -hmm. but more so at 14. Was it mostly alcohol or drugs and alcohol? Yeah, it was mostly some softer and some harder drugs, some pills and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't really a lot. I didn't really get my start before I really got put in the APG. I only tried Uh things maybe less than 10 times before I got um, taken into the APG and actually treatment program for, I went to a treatment program for about three months and then into the APG for about three years. What was your behavior that triggered that response from, I'm assuming your parents were the ones who made that possible for you to go to the, the facility? Yeah, I had a, my 15th birthday party. And so a bunch of kids came over and someone got arrested on my front lawn for dealing drugs or having drugs in their possession or something. Mm-hmm. And so um, the cops came in and my parents just got uh, really flustered. And so they drug tested me the next day and I came up positive. So their, their first response was, we got to get her some help. That was their first response. And so um, they didn't let me leave the house on my birthday until I peed in a cup, which was not my favorite thing to do. Once they found out that you had drugs in your system, I guess that was proof positive for them. All bets were off. Yeah. And so they told me they were taking me out to dinner and I ended up at um, the program. So oh, I get funny. it. There's a process, I believe, in your uh, field called intake. The person coming into treatment sits down with usually like an MSW or a clinical social worker, some somebody with your kind of credentials. When you when that was happening for you, what were you thinking and what were you telling them in response to the things they were asking you about? Oh, I was just like that. Everything is wrong. This is a mistake. This everything's not that bad. Like my parents are crazy. This is nonsense. I was just like I barely even tried drugs. You guys don't understand. I shouldn't be here. All that kind of things. Did you ever get the feeling that they were getting you or was it a fait accompli by the time you were done? (laughs) No, I think I got the feeling they had heard that a hundred times before. (laughs) Oh, that must have been rough. So did you have to detox or what what were your first few weeks in treatment like? Um, No, I didn't have to detox or anything. I hadn't really been using much. Mm -hmm. So I went to the treatment center. Well, I was in a a program, the APG program for a little while, but kind of got kicked out of there for some bad behavior. So then I went to the inpatient program. And so that was, it was really jarring because it was an eating disorder and um, substance abuse program. And so um, I was a vegetarian and they wouldn't let me, they wanted to make me eat meat Mm. and you couldn't go to the bathroom without like singing the birthday song. And like, there were just 
I, they made me sleep on a mattress out in the middle of the floor because they were worried about me self-harming. So it was just mm. a whole lot that I was like, this is crazy. I shouldn't be here. Like, I'm not that bad. Like, all my friends are doing this stuff, too. <laughs> they were trying to get help for you, I guess, right? Yes, exactly. Now, you're talking about some of the friends you had out there. Looking back at some of them or maybe even having followed them over the years, either by Facebook or whatever, what do you know about them and the impact that the drugs and alcohol had on them uh, compared to you? Well, two of them ended up in the APG with me. The rest of them were okay. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. Somebody told me that the APG, that People could, if they wanted to, find what they needed, but they would almost immediately get kicked out. Is, is that what it was like for you as well? Yeah, that's what happened to me. <laughs> One of my guests told me about that and said that two or three of them got together and decided that they were going to break the rule the way they wanted to, and they ended up kicked out as well. So I guess that's a good thing. Yeah, definitely. A zero tolerance policy, um, I think, as far as that is concerned, is has to be that kind of yeah. uh, rule for that kind of place, you know. Otherwise, kids getting together that are like that, that don't really want to be there for the most part, I think, otherwise, it would just be a mess. How did your folks react when you got kicked out? Uh, they kind of, I think, I mean, they were super mad, but I think they kind of knew it was coming. I'd gotten kicked out of my house too and had to live with mm -hmm. somebody else in the APG just for bad behavior continued. And so they were kind of at the their wits end with me. And so I don't think it surprised them, but they were mad. Uh-huh. Yeah, I get that. What was it like when you were there uh, That until the point at which you got kicked out did you feel like you were getting anything from what you were being helped with or did you feel like it was completely useless? What were your feelings around that? Well, what I've learned through all the treatment centers and all the tries that my parents had for me and everything is that what makes a difference is willingness. And I didn't have, I had zero willingness. And so I really didn't allow myself to get any help. What was your exposure to AA and other 12-step programs like during this time? Yeah, after the um, treatment center, I came back and was in the APG mm -hmm. program for the rest of my high school. So I was clean and sober for three years and went to AA that whole time, did the 12 steps. I even had sponsees and everything. Yeah. Really, really clean and sober? I mean... Really, really, nothing. For three years. Yeah, because I knew, like, it started off with drug tests and I knew, like, I just felt like I didn't have any other options uh -huh. because I had tried to run away at one point. Point. And uh, my parents came out and they like I was in the car with my friend's mom and my parents like threw their hands on the car and made me get out. And they were like, if you try to run away again, we're going to call the cops. And so I was just like, I have no other options other than to be clean and live in my parents' house. Like there's just nothing else to do. Talk about tough love. Yeah. What would you say about their behavior with regard to enabling versus, you know, the, the Al-Anon approach of letting the, the individual find their own willingness? They were a little overprotective, maybe a little jump the gun. But I would say like A plus for trying to get me help back then, which um, mm. I just wasn't willing to get. So um, I think that they tried their best and just weren't willing to give up, which just I feel like now shows me like the how much they love me, which I really appreciate. Um, and so it kind of didn't come until later where they kind of let me find my own bottom. I knew your dad during that time, and I could see the transition. Of course, I've been in AA a very long time, and happens to addicts who don't have the willingness or the desire to really get what other people want for them, which is sobriety. Mm -hmm. But, you know, sometimes it's difficult for parents to know how far tough love goes, how far letting the child or the adolescent or even the young adult do what they got to do and find their own bottom. Of course, we don't want them to die before they find their bottom. So when you were going through all this, the other, ki the other kids who got kicked out with you as well, did their parents get involved or what, what became of those people? Um, I think that... Um, I think it was just one other kid. I don't really know what happened to him, honestly. I don't mm, think he did yeah. well after that. I think that nobody's parents really reacted as strongly as, as mine did, but I think that 
I was, I'd really scared them a lot with the suicide attempt. And so, and they also had the history of dealing with my brother and all of his, um, mm -hmm. he had been in the psych ward like three times up to that point. And so they were just really, I think, at their wit's end with dealing with troubled kids. And so they kind of were just like, lock them up, <laughs> put away the key. And so I really understand where that was coming from. And it, it's completely up to you whether you want to answer this. But can you tell me a little bit about the, the suicide attempt and what led up to that and what was the outcome? I mean, I know what the outcome is because you're sitting here. So you didn't complete the job, which is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. But can you just kind of walk us through that? Yeah, there's been a couple, honestly, at different points in my life. I've dealt with a lot of clinical depression and anxiety. Um, but that first one is I was just um, my parents had really it had been a lot going on with my parents and they had grounded me, taken the door off the hinges, taken my phone away. They had turned, I think, turned off the electricity to my room mm -hmm. and told me I wasn't able to go out like for a month or so. And I was just felt so alone and just was dealing with the depression and just felt like there was never going to end. I felt like there's three more years in this house was going to be literally never ending. I felt like I just couldn't make it. Um, so I just tried to end it. And thankfully after, um, I, I cut, like I ran downstairs and banged on their door at like three in the morning and woke them up and they freaked out and took me to the hospital. So, so there was a part of you that was crying out for help, even in the midst of wanting to end it all. Yeah. That's a tough thing to for, for you to deal with, and I'm sure for your parents at the time. And you were how old when that happened? 14, I think. 14. You mentioned another attempt that you made. Was that later on? Yeah, that was, I think, around 22. So with the APG, you went to AA, and you stayed sober. Yeah. Were you in the APG the whole time you were in AA, or did AA come after the APG, or did they overlap? They were both together, yeah. They both were together. So what did you notice about AA in the beginning? And did you have any sense of what AA really had to offer? Were you resistant? Were you repulsed? Were you attracted? What were your feelings? <laughs> I did not like it at all. I was really resistant. We went and it was kind of out in Katy. Uh -huh. And so it was not really my crowd, which was maybe younger and more alternative. It was a little bit older crowd there and so i was like they had the whole mantra of like you've i've spilled more alcohol than you've ever drinking and so i did not feel super welcome or super understood there um and so i didn't really relate a whole lot but i kept going how often did you go we went in a few times a week. I'm always concerned whenever I hear about meetings like that where some of the old timers or people, especially if people have the co-addictions of drug abuse and, and alcoholism, where the people who just have the alcoholism want to compare it to substance abuse or other mental health issues. Uh, I always think it's a disservice to the newcomer. Looking back, how do you think them welcoming you in to the fold and really reaching out to you might have helped at that time? Um, I think it would have made it easier to go, honestly. I don't know how much it would have changed in terms of me embracing the program because I had a lot of resistance towards the idea of a higher power. And so that made me really resistant to the steps. Um, I sort of got myself through it because I was really just, I kind of put away like the part of me that was resistant to all this and didn't want to do it. I kind of just put that part of me like on the back burner and was like, this is what I have to do. I need to be sober. I need to work this program. And that is going to be my life for the next three years. And after I leave and after I leave home, I get to be myself again. But for right now, I just have to live this life and do it. And so that's what I did. Wow, what a plan. <laughs> yeah. Were you ever able to share that with anybody? You said you had a sponsor. What, what kind of help were you being offered at the time? 
my sponsor was great. I loved her. We were really close. I was close to all the people in the APG. Um, it was a wonderful program. Like I had great friends and we had fun and everything and I didn't, I stayed clean. And so, um, I was offered like the help in therapy. Mm -hmm. We went to an outpatient therapy like twice a week throughout that time and everything. So it was, it was all good stuff. I was just like, I didn't really let them know who I was or what I was dealing with, to be honest, because I wasn't ready and wasn't willing. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. You had it kind of planned out and you were staying sober. There are going to be people listening to this who maybe even in just six months or three months or a couple of weeks into their sobriety who are going to be listening to a woman who stayed sober for three years, knowing that she was going to go out after that. I'm curious, if someone came in to you today and sat down with you and said, here's my plan, Christina, this is what I'm going to do. Give me some feedback. What would you say? <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, psycho. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. I get the desperation that adolescents go through. Like I talk with my my adolescents that I have in my um, my private practice all the time, and that feeling of having to go through and do whatever your parents say because you just don't have an option. Um, a lot of my my clients have to put away their identities mm-hmm. as far as sexual orientation or things like that, and just go with like things that their parents want for them. And so it's, it's really tough as far as what, what kids deal with. And I think it kind of gets uh, underrated and we don't think about how tough that is. So sometimes we do have to deal with stuff like that. Yeah. I think more often than not too, especially nowadays. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind kind of unpacking the years following the year release, let's say from AA, what, what was, what did that look like when you first left and in the subsequent years? So I went to college. Um, it was great. Things were nice and easy. Um, I didn't like go out and like uh-huh. grab a six pack, and, like go for it immediately or anything. I just kind of tried a few things here and there when it was offered or um, just kind of had casual use and drinking um, for a little while and nothing was kind of out of whack. It was really when I started dealing with chronic pain that things kind of went downhill. From the standpoint of how you were being treated for the pain I was being treated for it okay and then for a time um, it was fine but then after a while like my doctor didn't want to treat me anymore and so I started getting stuff off the street wow how did that work out not well at all in what ways I started using heavier drugs and kind of things went downhill I started having a lot of consequences and um, things started getting worse for me in a lot of ways. So this is in your early 20s, you're 21 or 22. Yeah, around 21, 22. You're using these street drugs as an alternative to the doc not giving you what you needed to help with the pain. Uh, isn't isn't that pretty common these days with the opioids? Yeah, it's super common. Yeah, unfortunately. So you were an IV drug user? or, or uh, Yes, I uh, was. Uh, from the start, or did you kind of ease into that? Um, pretty much almost, I would say maybe a few months into it. Uh-huh. It's a pretty expensive habit to keep up. Yeah, it was. I had to lie, cheat, steal, do some demoralizing things that didn't really um, agree with who I am now, definitely. I'll bet. What were you thinking about yourself, stepping back at any point in time when you were doing that? What did you see when you were self-reflecting, or did you not do that at all? 
Um, I think I was doing a whole lot of justifying. Um, like if you were me, if you were in this situation, you'd do the same thing. Like, how could I do anything else? Yeah. So you were you were kind of stuck where you were with everything leaning towards trying to rationalize the behavior and justify your lifestyle? Absolutely. Yeah. What were your living arrangements like at this point? Um, I would kind of go from place to place um, every like six months or so, like one place wouldn't work out for one reason or another or roommates, this or that. You're talking about just apartment living or just living with friends? Mm -hmm. And the crowd that you were running with, what did they look like? Uh, that was the thing. I kind of had one crowd at university that was really great and upstanding and doing well. And I loved them and things were going great with them. But then kind of another crowd that was more like um, kind of more drug users and things like that, that was kind of a little bit rougher. Yeah, I can imagine. Were, were there consequences along the way? I mean, uh, with your using... Yeah, I had a, a lot of consequences looking back. Mm -hmm. um, I had a couple car accidents. I started failing out of uh, school, things like that. So uh, that started being really negative. So just kind of surface level things like that. And then what really stopped me in my tracks was when my boyfriend overdosed. And so that was really it for me. When you say he overdosed, he, he overdosed to death? Yeah, fatally. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. How old were you when that happened? I was 22. God, no 22-year-old should have to go through that. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So would you say that was a wake-up call for you? or? It was. I stopped doing IV drugs. Never did again. Just on your own self-will? or? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Oftentimes the opioids don't let people go without some help, but you were able to do it on your own? I mean, I got like um, the kind of withdrawal drugs that I needed and like did it through help, like just through a clinic and stuff like that. And I had some on my own, but I just was determined never to do that again because I loved him and I was like, I can't do that. I lived and he didn't. So I, I can't um, dishonor him like that. How long had you been together? Two years. But he was using about like you were using? Pretty much, kind of more sporadically than I was. Really? Yeah. Had you made plans with him? Um, yeah, I mean, I wanted to have my future with him, yeah. Yeah, that's sad. Yeah. But the opportunity for growth that comes out of it sometimes, is it's there anyway, I guess, huh? You can find meaning in the loss. That's how I've been able to deal with it, yeah. So when you stopped shooting heroin, did you give up the other drugs as well? Um, I started drinking like a whole, a whole, whole lot, like way too much. Yeah. What was your thinking behind that? Um, it was really like substance specific. I was like, I can't do this one drug because that killed him. And so I've got to get through. I just fell apart with grief. Um, I just couldn't get out of bed for about two months. I just stayed in my bed and drank and did literally nothing else. Um, my my parents had an intervention where they read letters and everything, and I was off to treatment again after that. <laughs> okay, so, so this is all happening around 21, 22? 22, yeah. So I'm, I'm getting the picture in my mind of somebody who is already clinically depressed, and I know what clinical depression is because I have it. Everybody in my family has it. Uh, people have died from it. And I know how tough that can be without the right medications, but I can imagine what it must have been like having clinical depression, drinking, and having just had a tragic loss. Yeah, I was a complete mess. I just couldn't, I couldn't even function. I couldn't, I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't talking to friends. I didn't do it, literally anything, just laid in bed and watched Netflix and, and drank huge amounts of alcohol. And this was at your parents' house? No, I had my own apartment. And you, you, you didn't have any real contact with people at that point, or were there certain people who knew? No, I had just, the thing was I had just graduated school. So I kind of, that was literally the, a month after I graduated with my undergraduate degree. So I kind of was supposed to be looking for a job, but I just had this tragic loss. And so I kind of had nothing going on. So there was nothing keeping me grounded as far as school or job or anything. What was the aftermath of that period? Um, really going to back to treatment. So you went, you went back to your folks and asked them for help at that point? 
No, they found out like I they found out about the the death and the overdose. And so they kind of um, realized what was going on with me. And they came up there and saw like the state I was living in and drinking and everything. And they knew about the drugs. And so um, they kind of intervened on their own. So as a result of that intervention, you ended up going to another treatment center. You'd already been to one when you were quite a bit younger. Was- yes. Was this the second one you had been to? Mm-hmm. So tell me about that. What? How did that work? And how, how did it look different from the first time you went? Um, it was, I was a little bit more willing this time. I knew I needed help. Uh-huh. And um, I knew that I kind of, was in bad shape. I kind of admitted that to myself. I knew at that point I had a problem with, with drugs and alcohol and I had mental health issues. So I was kind of a little bit more willing, but I still really wanted to run the show. Definitely still in self-will and not really ready to take a lot of help necessarily, unless it was more mental health help. I kind of felt like I had seen and done it all already with the APG And so I kind of went through this assessment period, but then wanted to do it on my own again, went back to Austin for a little Mm -hmm. while and then couldn't hack it. And so came back and went back to the treatment center again. Okay. So that would have been the third time. Yeah. When all that was going on, were you doing any AA or just the AA that was part of the treatment program? Just part of the treatment program. To what extent did you acknowledge, let's say, the idea of going back to AA from what you knew? I mean, because you were there for three years, you must have heard all kinds of stories about people that maybe had the same kind of situation you had who stayed sober either through it or eventually. Did you ever think about AA? What, what, what were your thoughts on that when you were going through all this at the treatment centers? No, to me, it was really a God-centered program, and I really didn't have that as part of my life or belief system, and I really didn't um, feel like I was ready for that, and I didn't, I was kind of thrown into the treatment center environment, Mm -hmm. and so I was kind of just going through, like, my dad was like, I'm not going to help you out anymore. Like you have to go to treatment or the apartment's gone. And so I was like, well, I guess it's treatment. So it was really, it was never like my choice until the last time when I asked to go to treatment. And then that was the end. So the idea was we can find a way to help Christina by letting her lose the things that usually people when they're at that point in their addiction or alcoholism, (laughs) They usually don't even care about that at that point. Well, you take away, go ahead, take it. I don't, you know, I'm just going to die anyway or something like that. But sounds like maybe it did have an impact on you to some degree. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I was semi, I was ready to go. Like I didn't have a plan or a thought or care, yeah. but I was like, I, I guess I'll do this. I really don't know what else to do. <laughs> yeah, I get it. That's a, that must be a hopeless, a really, really hopeless feeling. Yeah. You know, I wanted to zero in kind of on the missing puzzle piece that you just mentioned, and that was the lack of any kind of real um, spiritual connectedness or, or God awareness. How did that all factor in at that time? That was not present at that time. Um, that didn't come until later on when I asked to go to treatment and start working the steps in earnest. So you're 22 You've been to treatment three times now. Mm-hmm. So take us through the next few years and, and what those look like in your life. Yeah, I went to a step-down program out in Florida. So I went, did more treatment out there for a few months uh-huh. and did a lot of therapy and things like that out there. And so that helped a little bit. But while I was at the step-down, I was, I was supposed to be clean and sober, but like I was still couldn't deal with what I was going through. So while I was there, I was like taking like 20, uh, what are they called? Like uh, allergy medicine or whatever. Like amphetamines. (laughs) I mean, they're just over the counter allergy medicine, but I was like, that's what kids were doing at the treatment program. And I was like, I still don't know how to do this. I still don't know how to deal with myself. I still can't cope with what I'm going through. And I don't know that I want to be sober yet. It wasn't my choice. And so um, I wasn't really truly um, ready. And so I kind of lived around Florida for a little while and Mm -hmm. was coping well enough. I started drinking again, but um, it didn't get to a problematic point or so my parents thought, I Mm -hmm. guess. So I graduated the program and came back home um, and just kind of 
got a job and was just kind of aimless for a little while. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, okay, what should I do? I guess I should, I really want to like help people. I, it's time to like, I'm not going to, it's time to like actually get my, my butt in gear. So I went to graduate school. Mm -hmm. I started and went through graduate school and this is all I was using. And so I was aimless as a person, but getting the degree in like my chosen field and kind of figuring out what I wanted to do, but still not figuring out myself was the problem. <laughs> so you were what we would call a functional alcoholic or someone who can still get stuff done while continuing to do that. Yeah. The thing was, I was, I'd learned to get my self-esteem out of school. Hmm. Um, so as long as I was going to school and getting all A's, I felt like I was okay as a person. I learned that it is as a young age, you're okay as a person if you're getting all A's. And so as long as like that was externally okay with me, I felt like things were okay and I, I could feel good about myself. And so, um, it didn't come until like I had graduated and then I was kind of aimless again. That's when things really went downhill. Yeah, I can imagine that must have been really tough. Sounds like what I've heard people talk about before, and that is, how could I possibly be an alcoholic or drug addict? Look at the great things I've accomplished, or look at my perfect grades, or look at the big company I built, or look at look at the goodies that I've been able to attain. I An alcoholic couldn't do that, but yet you were able to get good grades even in the midst of continuing your use, huh? Yeah, well, it was all I had to cling to. Yeah. <laughs> I had nothing else in my life. It was like, you better be getting good grades. What was the master's program that, that you were in? What were you studying to do? Clinical mental health counseling. Isn't that interesting that you were studying that while you were in the midst of needing that? What what was that? <laughs> is there irony in that or am I just mad? There definitely it? is. But I think that's kind of I mean, it's fairly common. People say they go into you go into mental health first for one reason or another, you're attracted to that field. So I think you kind of that's a very first year uh mental health thing to do, kind of get into it for your own needs, and then you gotta work your stuff out in order to help other people. <laughs> It almost sounds like what it says in the big book about, you know, no amount of knowledge or self-knowledge is going to avail us anything or very much at all. But I've seen more than a few people decide that they don't need AA because they would study up and make sure they understand what alcoholism really, really was. And then they'd be able to quit because they would know. But I guess it didn't happen for you, did it? No, learning about mental health did not help me on my own journey. No, wow. I had to get the mental health myself mental health help myself. So how did that look? What were the circumstances under which that materialized in your life? Yeah, I kind of hit my own bottom finally. I was had graduated and was just kind of drinking a mm -hmm. lot and using a, a lot. And I just felt aimless and purposeless. I'd done what I was set out to do, but I felt so unhappy and just felt like I didn't have anything in life. I didn't have any friends. I didn't have a relationship with my family. I didn't have a job. I didn't have anything. Mm. Um, and I just felt, I felt that old feeling and feeling suicidal again. And I was like, maybe it's time for me to actually take a look at this. And maybe it is all the drinking and drugs that is actually the problem. Mm. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah. And so I reached out to um, my parents for help and asked them if I could go to treatment again um, of my own volition. Mm and and asked to to go and and went you mentioned about the suicidal ideation is that what it's called yes did you actually attempt suicide and how old were you when that happened this was right before i got clean so 29 i made a pact with myself i said i'll try this treatment thing i'll try this getting clean thing one more time and I'll do it for myself. And if it doesn't work, then I will kill myself. And if it does work, then yay. <laughs> so we're talking about from 22 to 29. Sounds like that must have been a really difficult period in your life. Yeah, I was not paved with uh, good things at all. Just kind of super aimless, uh, bad friendships, negative work experiences, just chaotic. How close were you to your parents during that time? Not close at all. We had uh, really uh, lost a lot of trust and a lot of uh, relationship balance after the many lies and uh, many, many broken promises 
and uh, just all the negative things that had happened throughout the years. Have you had the opportunity to make amends about that at some point? Yes, I did. And um, I'm happy to say that me and my dad are extremely close and I love him so much. And uh, me and my mom are closer and we're working well, on that's it. that's good. It's, it's a process. Yeah. 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 It is a process. 22 to 29, you're going bananas out there. You're, you're just continuing to use bad relationships, bad situation, bad jobs. It doesn't sound like a very enjoyable span of time. No, not at all. <laughs> I guess I could have figured that one out. Um, <laughs> you hit 29. What was the turning point? Do you remember a, a single occurrence or a single day where you had this realization or was it a kind of a culmination? is really a culmination. I think I'm really bad when I don't have like school or work or purpose. I'm really purpose driven. Mm -hmm. I love helping people and I love feeling like I'm doing something with my life. I care a lot about social justice and like I'm passionate towards like helping people. And when I feel like I'm not like serving a purpose or doing something, uh, I just don't feel like I'm doing anything with my life. And I feel un unvalued, unneeded, unwanted. During that seven years, were you actually practicing social work or mental health counseling? Um, I was practicing a little bit throughout the, the last year, um, doing a clinical internship. How did that feel? Well, you were in the midst of doing that, but yet the Christina outside of work hours was a different person. Oh, it was such a nightmare. I would go to work like shaking and sweating from like alcohol withdrawals, <laughs> and, like <laughs> trying to be working with people with substance abuse and serious mental health stuff. And I'm like, this... It's so ridiculous. Like, I need to get my life in order. <laughs> and aren't counselors trained to see that in other people? Were you confronted by anybody? I never was so surprising. I think that this, these people just must have had a lot going on with their clients that they didn't confront me. So you're in a career where you're doing the things that you're trying to counsel your clients about not doing. How did you, how did you resolve that to finally turn the corner? Yeah, I felt like I couldn't do what I was trying to do. I couldn't live my purpose while I was a total wreck. And so I feel like that was a huge part of it. Um, I couldn't f fulfill this life that I had just gone to grad school for three years and I couldn't do anything with it because I was so non-functional. And uh, on top of that, like the days were just monotonous, waking up, drinking, going back to sleep, waking up, drinking, going back to sleep. It was just a nightmare. During this period of time till you finally got sober, did you have any physical health consequences during that time? When I went to treatment, they checked out a lot of stuff and they said I had some liver damage and uh, things like that. But they said it was stuff that I could come back from as long as I didn't drink again. When you were in that seven-year period, had you already gone back to the drug use or was it mostly alcohol? I did some pills, but never back to IV use. Okay, so that stuck, your de your decision to not do that anymore. Yeah, thank God for that. So you're 29, you've asked your folks for help. Yeah. What was their response? Yes, they were like emphatically yes, as I remember. They, I mean, they're a little hesitant yeah. because they've spent so much money on treatment already. My dad has, poor guy. But he was like, yeah, she's finally asking for help. Yeah, right away. <laughs> did, did you have any sense that they had finally given up on you? Or what was that like in that relationship? In a, in a way, I felt like I felt like it, they were kind of just waiting for me to ask for help. Honestly, they kind of backed up and taken a back seat and were kind of letting me do my own thing. Um, I, but I felt like at any time if I asked for help, they would be there. Hmm. And we know that they were. Yeah. So the treatments that you received at 29, which presumably was your last treatment? Yes. How did that differ, say, at the last treatment as opposed to the first treatment? Literally nothing. It was the same treatment center. <laughs> the same thing. Okay. Yeah. So it was Christina that was different. Yeah. <laughs> did you have that feeling from the minute you went in or did you have doubts? Yeah. No, I knew it was over. Talk about a moment of clarity. It really was. I just couldn't do it anymore. Do you remember what the first few days were like in there? Um, they were putting me, they had me on withdrawal protocol, so it was a little foggy, but it wasn't really as bad as it could have been had I gone to somewhere where they didn't know what they were doing medically. So I was really grateful for that. But I had just massive anxiety the whole time I was there. Were you being treated for the depression and the anxiety concurrently? 
Yes, it was a part the psychiatric hospital, part treatment center. So they had um, great doctors and they were treating me for my mental health and for substance use. I've also you know, had experience with various treatment centers over the years. Sometimes the fact that there isn't somebody medical on staff, I mean, right there all the time, may make the treatment a little bit light on the medical issues that are coming up. Did, did you find that to be the case, comparing where you were at 29 versus the other treatment centers? Yeah, I think the place I was at was a godsend. Um, I am so lucky and thankful for my parents for allowing me to go. And I think that what I needed personally was mental health care and substance use care um, at the same time for co-occurring disorders, or I wouldn't have gotten clean because the mental health stuff for me was such a big part of my story that I wouldn't have gotten clean if the depression and anxiety sustained and I wouldn't have, and I wasn't able to function without getting clean. So it was really, I needed that co-occurring help. So it was the whole package that you bought. Yeah. What was your involvement with AA during this time? Did it start up again? To what degree were you involved in AA? Yeah, we went to AA and NA um, meetings when while we were in the hospital, and uh-huh. um, I really started getting into that and really liked it and kind of vibed more with NA while I was there. So um, once I left, I started going to an NA meeting uh-huh. kind of near where I lived and have been going ever since. What was the feeling like for you? I mean, you knew what it was like to go to AA for three years, staying sober, but not wanting to be there, planning to not be there at a certain point. (laughs) What was the difference in feeling between the early AA and the AA you experienced at 29? Yeah, it was really about surrender for me. Um, I had to really give up like what I was kind of going with my will and trying to live life my own way and try to do things like the way I was doing them. I had to finally give up and give in to trying to let someone else help me and try to take back like um, my ability to help myself as well and and engage in my own treatment for once like um, fully. And then also actually admitting that I was an addict for the first time and fully acknowledging that and the chaos that I had surrounded myself with and brought into other people's lives was really all of that was paramount for me in order to continue my recovery. Yeah, I'll bet it was. And it's super important to longer term recovery, too. One of the obstacles I faced when I first came into AA, and you mentioned a little bit earlier about the about the God part of the program, but I had a big problem with the God part of the program. As much as I know I needed AA, I still was not ready for that spiritual experience or that spiritual awakening. How did you feel about all that when you went back to AA meetings at 29? Yeah, I was still very skeptical, but I was willing to do anything, literally whatever it took. Uh So I kind of put my head down and was like, I will do this and I will make the group my higher power and see how that goes and see if anything else clicks. And so it was a spiritual awakening to me, but um, I had a lot of problems with insomnia when I got clean. And so for about six or nine months, I was only sleeping two to four hours. Hmm. And so I just couldn't sleep and it was really difficult. I would fall asleep at my desk at work Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it was really kind of an unlivable situation because I was only able to sleep out there um, in the world when I had substances. And so I was kind of just fighting this battle with insomnia that was really difficult once I got clean. And so um, I went to this meeting with my sponsor and it happened to be an 11 step meeting. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up doing a meditation in the meeting. And so in the meeting, I I fell asleep when we did a meditation. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I think this is what I've been looking for. And so um, I started meditating to go to sleep each night. And that really helped with my insomnia. And I've gotten a lot better sleep since then. So that was like, I could see that there was something greater than me in my life trying to help me out and trying to show me the way for myself. And so that really helped me through that. So that little spiritual nightlight kind of came on for you, didn't it? Yeah. What kind of things have you done within the AA program, within your own sobriety to brighten that particular lamp? Um, Working with other people and Mm -hmm. fellowshipping. I think that for me, more than anything else, um, being a part of the fellowship and making friends and kind of creating a life within the program has been really big for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Just kind of making 
lifelong these lifelong friends that I see at meetings and see at, during the week and every day um, has really just solidified like being clean and sober and the life that I want to live and recovery for me they like embody the recovery that I want to live in the life that I have this at this point and I have these great friends and I see them and they are all living the program and living the spiritual principles and we go to meetings together and have fun together mm -hmm. and this is never a life I thought I could have and I never thought this was what it would look like being clean and and I'm happy and I can see that and have that function through a group of friends and that really is kind of um, what recovery means to me boy if that isn't a god thing i don't know what is <laughs> i mean gee you just laid it out you just laid it out perfectly yeah not to mention that when i was um, coming out of treatment i had like diagnosed social anxiety and i couldn't talk to people uh -huh. and so that was um, something i went through treat like therapy to go to deal with being able to like actually go up to people and start a conversation wow. and so being coming from that point to the point I am now with people is just, it's a miracle. Yeah, that's the kind of miracles that attract people to AA in the first place. One of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is because I want people to know that there's a lot that goes on between the date somebody gets sober and where they are right now. Can you think of some things that have happened during your sobriety over the past almost four-year period that were real milestones for you? Um, let's see. I think, um, starting to work at a private practice, mm -hmm. seeing clients and learning to practice EMDR so I can help people work with their own trauma has been really huge. Mm. Just seeing people, um, kind of heal from these traumatic experiences mm -hmm. has been a great gift for me. Um, also working with others in the programs, having sponsees and everything like that has been really uh, a great gift. Again, I'm really like uh, others centered. I really love working with others and, and seeing people um, heal from things and become um, happy and become people they want to be. Yeah, that's a that's a beautiful sentiment. And uh, I think it, it sums up a, a program well worked when you can say that with conviction. And it sounds like you've got the conviction to helping others. And I mean, isn't that what's all over the big book? You know, we, we got to help others to help ourselves. And yeah, sounds to me like like you're doing that. Any times during the f almost four years where you felt on thin ice or where you had to kind of redouble your efforts? Yeah, I am dealing with chronic pain. And so that has been a really tough, tough road for me, especially in recovery. And so it gotten to the point around my two years where I wasn't getting the medical help that um, I needed. And I was just like, if I don't figure this out, like, I feel like I'm just going to drink. So I'm not in pain anymore. Mm. Um, and I was just really difficult. I was just, I couldn't walk. I couldn't get mm -hmm. out of bed. It was just horrible. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I was finally working with, um, some med medical health professionals that were really helpful. And I was able to get some of the help that I needed to get that work done and got surgery and everything. And so, um, I was able to make it through and also get my two years and, um, kind of rely on my friends through that too, because I think, um, uh, I just kind of, when you get around those year marks, you kind of get a little squirrely. I think, yeah, for some yeah. of us. And so I think that was happening. So I think kind of making it through that and knowing that kind of like three or four of my friends were all around the same year marks for um, having four years or so, three or four years. And so knowing through they were going through that too and dealing with some of the difficulties there too helped me as well. So your posse of women. And men. And men. And gay men, really. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, but this posse of people that you had around, they gathered around you in your time of need and you learned how to help gather around them in their time of need. Absolutely. There's so much reciprocity to that, isn't there? Yeah. Um, and that's been something that's been difficult for me to learn, honestly. Um, I'm not someone who opens up to others really easily. Mm -hmm. I'm always the person... Um, I'm the person who's a good listener. I'm the person that people come to. And so I'm not used to talking about my own problems and my own issues. Mm -hmm. So I've really been working on trying to open up more as a person and become... Um, more open about my problems and lean on other people. But I realize that I can't do this on my own. And so um, it's always a good idea to get the opinions of others and the advice of others. Well, you've done a, f a really a remarkable job of opening up to me today. 
<laughs> thank you. And I want to thank you for that, and I want to honor you for doing that, because that is a tough thing to do, especially when we've got the kind of backgrounds with mental illness and drug abuse and alcoholism that you and I both hopefully have behind us. Yeah. Now that we are in recovery, uh, you for almost four years and me for the number of years that I've been around. So, But it's beautiful for you to open up in a way that's going to touch other people when they hear your story. I'd always heard about it, but through other lenses, and... This kind of completes the picture in a way that I never would have known you the way I do now. And it, it all happened within an hour and 13 minutes. <laughs> and you've, you've, just been, you've just been really terrific. Can you think of anything that you'd like to um, put out there to the universe about your own recovery and about AA in general? Um, I think just patience. I think a lot of times I get ahead of myself and want what I want when I want it. Yeah. Um, and just to remind myself and um, probably everybody that patience is something that is so underrated, especially with ourselves. I think we can be patient with other people really easily or I can, but I think I'm really impatient when it comes to myself. Yeah, I think we all are. I, I know I'm that way. You know, what's funny about it, Christina, is that... Uh, it says spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. But yet when I fall short of the progress, I get bent out of shape that I'm not perfect. Does that make sense? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, can I ever be satisfied with progress or does it take the prospect of perfection to spur me on? But sounds to me like you're you're more of a progress gal these days than you might have been in the past. Absolutely. It's the only way I can be happy with myself and where I'm at now is to focus on my progress and just trying to be a better person and focus on self-growth and work through um, what I'm going through whenever something crops up, like character defect or something. Just pray and meditate on that and ask for um, the help that I need there, because I know that I'm not perfect these days. And I know that striving for that only creates um, unnecessary uh, heartache for me. And so I just focus on being where I'm at today. Wow, what an exceptional way to think and what an extraordinary way to live. Uh, this has been just absolutely great today, Christina. I'm so glad I had the chance to talk to you in depth and put it in a format that will be of use to others. I mean, you and I both want to be of service to other people, and here's one of the ways that we're doing it. You opening up to me, caring about you a lot, even before I ever knew you, <laughs> vicariously through your dad. I just want you to know that uh, I honor your sobriety, and I love you, and I care about the good work that you're doing out there in the community because uh, it needs, the community needs what you, what you have. Thank you again for doing this today. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. I really appreciate it. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Christina C., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please leave a rating or review for the show on your podcast app. That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to any or all of my other interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, Downcast, and other podcast player apps. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. <laughs>